People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, this is Virginia Heffernan, and welcome to This is Critical, where we examine all of our cultural assumptions, like that Joe Rogan is the worst hawker of farm-fresh, piping-hot disinformation. When, have you heard of Richard Epstein? So Epstein is the libertarian super hawk who served naturally on the Guantanamo task force. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at New York University, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the ultra-conservative Hoover Institution. He's the James Parker Hall Distinguished Service Professor of Law Emeritus and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. And he's plenty rich. But he doesn't have a $100 million deal with Spotify or a snoozy yelling podcast with 11 million listeners. Not even close. This guy's in an ivory tower. But in early 2020, when the novel coronavirus was just a twinkle in the eye of cruel fate, Epstein had something better than a podcast when it came to seeding lies. The ears of everyone in power, including the then president whose name you know. Epstein is reliably praised for exerting a pervasive influence on American legal thought. And on March 16th, 2020, let's take a breath to remember how little we knew about the pandemic then, Epstein published an article on the website of the Hoover Institute in which he argued that the virus should be allowed to run its course. And he predicted that there would ultimately be 500 U.S. deaths. That's right, 500. This from a paragon of legal brilliance. So let's have another breath. As of today, there are 901,000 deaths of COVID in the United States. Epstein's paper blamed those who might intervene in the pandemic for their lib, big government ways. Progressives think they can run everyone's lives through central planning, groused Epstein. He was kind of like a child who's just read Atlas Shrugged. The Washington Post reported that the crowd around Trump loved Epstein's paper. And that's where they got the idea that the virus was no big deal. It would go away with good weather. And it would stimulate people to quickly somehow evolve into more fitness so the cases would stay low. Basically, the virus would be gone by Easter of 2020, like a miracle. Okay, Epstein did get nervous as the casualties mounted. He managed to revise his COVID deaths number upward from 500 to 5,000, claiming the 500 had been a typo, an honest mistake. He then said he meant 50,000. 
Now, reminder, the number is, as of today, 901,000 deaths from COVID. An actual data scientist, Rex Douglas, faulted Epstein not just for errors, but for basically fraud. Cherry-picking data, avoiding specificity, using doublespeak, and showing an utter indifference to the truth. So Epstein maybe shouldn't have ventured into virology and epidemiology. You know, he could have stuck to his job of cheering for the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. He could have continued to panic about his other subject, affirmative action, which Epstein considers some form of, you guessed it, reverse racism. Isn't it weird how, and in the case of Joe Rogan too, COVID disinformation and creepy thoughts about race seem to go hand in hand? But back to Epstein. Isn't it possible that a hugely public figure, a highly influential intellectual, isn't it possible that he might have proven his mind is not clear enough and he lacks a solid enough track record to keep passing ivory tower judgments about race and the war on terror that almost certainly cherry-pick data, show utter indifference to the truth, and are suffused with what looks a lot like warmongering racism. Today I'm talking to Epstein's polar opposite, Sarah Jaffe. Jaffe's an intellectual supernova who covers, as she says, the class war, one battle at a time. Recently, she's been questioning the horrible bromide that if you pursue a career in something you love, you'll, quote, never work a day in your life. Shudder. Jaffe points out that love is not something we're supposed to feel about work, and that often corporations try to get us to love them as a way of dicking us around and underpaying us. Her recent book is Work Won't Love You Back, How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Exhausted, and Alone. So Sarah, for most of human history, we didn't even have this idea that a person would have or want a, quote, job. And Work Won't Love You Back, your book, makes the case that not only is it anomalous that having a job should be something we all aspire to and something we all do, but that we're not meant to be devoted to that job and in love, as you say, with that job. So how'd we get here? Yeah, one of the things I wanted to do with this book was sort of historicize, like, A, the job in general, and B, the idea that we should love our jobs. Because that is a relatively new phenomenon. There's an arc to this that is um, somewhat different than the assumption we might make, which is that we have always loved our jobs. And, you know, not that long ago when the major driver of like the American economy, the Western European economy, since I'm talking to you from London right now, um, was manufacturing work. Nobody expected you to love working in the factory. Mm -hmm. Certainly no one expected coal miners to love going down the coal mine. That was just not part of the equation. Part of the equation was like, I can get this job with a minimum level of education needed. They will train me on the job. And then I can stay there for 40 years and I will, um, after, you know, several decades of union battles, have a decent wage, weekends off, overtime if I'm working too much, be able to buy a house, maybe put my kid through school so they don't have to go work in the coal mine. And the idea that you would love it, the practice of doing your job itself, was just not an issue. And this is even true in reporting that I've done on factories, factory closures, for instance, in recent years, you know, I would ask people like, what are you going to miss when the factory closes? And they're like, the paycheck, (laughs) $26 an hour plus overtime, right? All right. So we're told to love our jobs and we start to depend on them for community and identity, which can lead to some big problems. 
The North Star question for us today is why is it such a grave mistake to make work the main source of fulfillment in our lives? Yeah, the short answer to that is because we don't ultimately have the free choice to go to work when we want, where we want, and how we want, but we actually are incredibly constrained in those choices, opportunities, and what we can do once we're there because ultimately we are doing it to make somebody else money. One of the points I wanted to make with this book is that it's not about whether your boss is bad. And in fact, even if your boss is good, work is still a thing that like under capitalism is not a free choice that we make and is not a thing that even your boss has a lot of freedom around, right? I have had good bosses. I have had terrible bosses in both journalism and the other places I've worked, which is mostly the service industry. And ultimately, every single one of them was constrained by the need to make money and that prevented them from... Um, not emotionally caring about me, perhaps, but certainly doing the material work of actually taking care of their employees in a real way. Yeah, and as you said, we don't always have control over what types of work are available to us and how we're expected to feel about that work, whether it's knowledge-based work or the service industry or manual labor. You know, we hear a lot about the knowledge economy, but that's really a minority of the work. But still... um, the service economy and the knowledge economy being the things that are, are dominant now and again, places like U.S., Western Europe, um, those are the places where we are expected to show up and love your job or at least if you're doing service work like I did for 10 years of my life, pretend to love your job and pretend to love your customers. I mean, and that exerts an additional cognitive burden on a person. So this is like how I feel about cooking, by the way. I loathe cooking. I wish cooking was still included among housework and chores that you're supposed to hate and not among the things you're supposed to be excited about. Because owning hating cooking has become like owning hating work. It's somehow sinful. Well, and I mean, it is work, right? It, it's it's unpaid work. It's household labor. It's all of these things, but it is still work to cook. Yeah. And so when you've been, you know, doing a, your day shift, right? This is what Arlie Russell Hawkshaw called the second shift. Yes. You're working a full-time job and then you have to cook maybe just for yourself, you know, which I finally learned to enjoy. Again, 41 years old, learned to cook during the pandemic because what else was I going to do with my time? And the first few years that I was a journalist, I had a day job and was doing writing on the side. So yeah, I mean, I start the book talking about the unpaid work that is still mostly done by women in the home because I think it's an important place to look if we're trying to figure out where these expectations that we will do things out of love rather than money comes from. Tell me about that family chapter because that does seem very powerful. Oh yeah, nuclear fallout. Great title. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, you're getting me actually today having just gone to an art gallery and lunch with Ray, Ray Malone, who is the the mom from my book, yeah. who is brilliant. And she's a theater producer and an artist and a single mother and an organizer around all of these issues and specifically among single moms and queer parents here in London. Um, and the fallout thing is her thing, right? She started her organization was called Fallout Club, which was fallout from the nuclear family, which again mm. is a reference to single and queer parenting that is not happening in the thing that we sort of assumed the family was for a really long time. And that's just not the reality of so many people now, partly because the workplace has changed. And this is a subject I can talk about for like three hours. So you may have to rein me in. No, 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 don't stop. But what we what we think of as the family is also not natural, right? This, this that man, woman, 2.5 children thing is also not like the way that humans sort of existed in a state of nature. 
The family, the nuclear family is a development that came up alongside of industrial capitalism and sometimes in really like obvious ways. Like I I write about um, Henry Ford having his sociological department, which I love that that's what it's called. That was literally inspectors that would go into his employees' homes and make sure that they were living in upstanding ways, which meant being like heterosexually married and reproducing and their wife not having a job outside of whatever. And this is what you had to endure in order to get his famous $5 a day wage. Mm -hmm. If you were not like a proper family man, you didn't get paid that much because Mm -hmm. he didn't think that you deserved it. Um, Mm -hmm. Or if your wife, like God forbid, had a job herself, that was also grounds for dismissal. Mm -hmm. So like... Mm -hmm. This thing that we think of as as natural, the thing that like particularly conservative commentators like to really hype as like, this is the way humans should be living is not natural in the least. And what it is, is a, you know, sort of artificially socially enforced division of labor Mm -hmm. that says the work that is done in the home is done by women. It is not really work. It is not worthy of pay. It's just what they do because they love their husbands and children Mm -hmm. Um, and maybe in-laws and maybe anybody else they might be responsible for caring for. And that is, you know, that is still relevant today because again, like every survey that we've seen during the pandemic has been like how much harder the burden has been on women who have caring responsibilities during all of this because they're still doing most of the caring now, 2022. Uh I mean, I've been a single mother for most of my mothering time and my kids are teenagers. And it's also a source of cultural shaming if you don't love every single minute of it, which is truly astounding. And to connect to your retail chapter, you profile a woman who spent her life at Toys R Us and then Babies R Us, and you detail the creation of the mother and the baby and the child as consumers. So tell me about that. Oh, my goodness. Um, I, I can't start talking about the retail chapter without noting that Anne-Marie Reinhardt, who I profiled in that chapter, passed away from COVID. And I think that that's sort of an important place to, to return to, both because she was a lovely woman and I miss her, and also because that is who died of COVID and who is still getting Mm -hmm. sick from COVID, right? As people who had to go into public-facing jobs and didn't really have a choice, the people that we called essential workers. I'm really sorry to hear that. She she just, she comes through as just a, a marvelous mind in the book. Yeah, she was really incredible and really thoughtful. I got, you know, I mean, I did the work of, of trying to find people, but like, I was also just so lucky in finding how thoughtful all of the folks that I talked to were about their own position, not just in the workplace, but in every facet of their lives, right? She was talking about the way that people treated retail workers, treated her, you know, she had a scar on her forehead from somebody throwing a Power Ranger toy at her. That that assumption, that way that she was treated as sort of not good enough. But it also came from like her family, right? Where her husband said to her, like, shouldn't you get a real job? And she's like, like, I've been working here for decades. This is a real job. You just don't think of it as a real job because it's gendered as not a real job. And, you know, again, those those are expectations that are shaped in a time when we would have assumed that men would have a quote unquote real job either in, you know, in management or on the, the factory floor. Mm-hmm. And the other things were work for women. Mm-hmm. And that meant it wasn't serious. It didn't need to be unionized. It didn't need to be um, paid fairly. It didn't need to have the same protections. And so what happens when the industrial jobs go away and suddenly the retail jobs are what everybody has to take mm-hmm. is that you get 
men forced into these conditions of what had been sort of low-wage feminized labor. Mm-hmm. And that is what's happened to the economy in rough terms in since the 1970s. Yeah. And I just recently learned, I don't know if you know about this, but there's a fourth option when you're faced with a potential threat. You know, we know about fight, flight, and freeze, but have you heard of fawn? I just learned about this, where you people please and you try to diffuse a tense situation by kind of dancing attendance on the person. I mean, I feel in some ways like service jobs demand nonstop fawning reactions. I mean, you could really call these jobs the fawn sector. Mm-hmm. I love calling it the fawn sector. That is wonderful. It's it's so real, right? The the So I worked in restaurants for a very long time, which of course in much of the US, you still get paid $2.13 an hour and the rest is tips. And some states have finally started getting rid of the tip minimum wage, but not nearly enough. And so, right, so every bit of money that I took home basically was coming out of the pockets of my customers. And that means that if my customer wants to grab my butt as I walk by, what are my options there? Um, I can either yell at them, get them kicked out, whatever, if I have a supportive manager enough to actually kick them out, which is a you know crapshoot. Sometimes I did, sometimes I didn't. Um, or you smile and say, you know, politely remove their hand from you with gritted teeth. And you smile. And of course, you're, we're recording this for audio, so you can't see my like pasted on smile like everybody else. But your listeners who have done service work probably know exactly what I'm talking about here in that like, the calculations that go through your brain in those moments are just like, what do I do? What can I do? Mm-hmm. And the boundaries of that are like, how badly do I need a tip from this one table? Is my manager going to have my back? Like all of these things that like, what? I shouldn't have to put up with that. But yet that's how it is. And so, right, it does demand this sort of fawning response. Again, Arlie Russell Hochschild, this is what she called emotional labor, which is like managing your own emotions mm. to produce an an emotional state in someone else. So no matter what I was actually feeling while waiting tables, I had to make sure that my customers were happy. And Mm -hmm. that meant doing whatever I needed to do to make sure that they felt good. Um, And my feelings just have to go like down here somewhere. And then you let them out at the end of the shift. And that's why everybody in the restaurant industry drinks too much. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That just takes an enormous toll on you. I mean, it's such a good description that you have of um, just... Yeah, managing the emotional states of others is amazing. Yeah. It is also extraordinary how much women end up doing that in even in other sectors. So mm-hmm. obviously wellness and all kinds of caregiving. Um, yeah. And just those those ways are so astonishing that we um, exert ourselves in surprising directions. And you do such yeah. a good job of cataloging them. Thank you. The point that I want to make in this book actually is that alienation and exploitation, these like old Marxist concepts, are not about your feelings. Mm. You are exploited yes. even if you like your job. But like exploitation is the fact that your employer makes more money off you than they pay you. Right. A simple point. That's just, it's just a fact. Yeah. And it's happening when I like my job. It is happening because my publisher makes more money off my book than I do even though it's my book and I'm out here talking about it and I get to be the face of it. At the end of the day, the publisher makes more money off the book than I do. Yeah. Um, But I want to be really clear that like, I am not saying that we are all just like so sad that we should just like curl up into balls and cry. Like actually I'm saying that we should all organize our jobs and throw out our bosses. 
So I, um, my teacher in all things union is my sort of stepson figure, my partner's um, son, who is a union thug, as he describes himself. And um, he read it. I read a recent article about um, a major New York broadsheet uh, newspaper, um, well known around the world. The members of the newspaper guild, my former union, who worked for this newspaper had decided that they were paying too many of the dues and um, and that other other places were kind of on their coattails or just like r- free riders. And what Carter pointed out, and I really want to give him credit for this, is it's like almost brings tears to my eyes. He was like, you don't work for the the employer. You work for the union. And he said, that's how you alleviate the idea. Like you with your union buddies, and that's how you come out of a job, even in the coal mines, happy about what you do is because your alienation is uh, solved by collective action. And this comes to, you know, the sort of end of your book, uh, more about solidarity and loneliness, that you see yourself as working, you know, with your fellow travelers um, and working kind of for them in this collective way. And that was... A revelation to me, and one thing the young have brought us is a really brass tacks analysis of like reminding me that you work for the union and not for your freaking boss. Of course you don't, right? Yeah. But that, yeah. but but you know, lots of neoliberal conditioning has um, has made me forget that. I want to talk about the loneliness solidarity. It, it, that's all a transition to that. Loneliness is exploitation and exhaustion and alienation, as you point out, are not. Emotional states. Mm-hmm. These are legitimate responses to the way we work in our society. I mean, you might not feel alienated at work, but you're forced to view your coworkers as competition. You might not describe yourself as a lonely person, but long, draining work hours don't leave you time to connect with your friends. I mean, these things are true whether or not you personally enjoy your job because they're affecting everyone around you. And to bring it to full circle, we end up using consumer goods to treat these afflictions, right? Yeah. You, I mean, that is actually a huge breakthrough that I'll need some time to metabolize, that they've turned into ideas of I feel alienated, I feel alone, this kind of modernist thing that's like something in me has caused depression and anxiety to, you know, sweep over my life and what I need is a new diet or a new whatever. So your point is well taken on that. But I haven't heard people address this, what you call loneliness, um, as a phenomenon of late capitalism. Tell me about loneliness. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that happens when you individualize everything and you turn everything into a form of competition is it, it destroys the relationships you can have with other people, right? Like that's just a sort of basic, like, I, I mean, I'm a freelancer. I've been a freelancer for way too much of the <laughs> last too. 15 years, um, which means I'm constantly alone. I'm, I'm literally you know, talking to you from a friend of mine's apartment while she is on a shift. She's also a freelancer in the other room. Um, and so, right. So when those are like the forms of solidarity that I have like built back into my life because I don't have coworkers in the same sense. Yeah. Um, I am, you know, my friend Joanna is my coworker in that she is also a journalist in that sometimes we write for the same places. Um, mm-hmm. And then I have been on her podcast. Like these, these are things, but mm-hmm. we don't, you know, have like a singular employer in that way. Um, this is what freelancing does to us. But even if you are working in the same prestigious employer, say, um, if we want to go back to the New York media for an example, right? Like if you think that your way to solve your 
problems in the workplace is to climb the ladder really quickly and step on everyone underneath you, Mm -hmm. then where does that leave you at the end of the day when you suddenly need other people? And this is, this is, you know, it brings us back to the care question, right? Is it like Mm -hmm. one of the things that I have learned so deeply from disability rights organizers is like, we will all need care at some point. Mm -hmm. We are all sort of temporarily well. And this Mm -hmm. is a thing that the pandemic I think should have brought home to us more than perhaps it has is that we are all temporarily well. Um, A few weeks ago, I tested positive for COVID. Luckily I was, I'm, you know, had been boosted and I had very mild symptoms and I was fine. But the amount of people who texted me to say like, do you need food? Can I bring you groceries? Can I like order food to your house? Can I send you, you know, what do you need? Mm-hmm. Was really amazing. And it was, it was a moment of, of realization that like I've done something well in my life because like there are mm-hmm. people who take care of me, even though I am a single woman of a certain age. And those kinds of relationships are sort of mitigated against, and we sort of have to fight like salmon swimming upstream to form them because every every incentive would be for me and Joanna to not be friends. Mm. Um, it would mm-hmm. be for us to see each other as competition on the way to the top of being the, you know, XYZ feminist journalist, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And instead to, to push back against that, that is a thing that I think um, we can sort of do personally. And again, because it is the foundational tenet of organizing. Like we actually have to come together because like individually you and I can't solve climate change or even make our boss do much of anything. But the more people you actually bring together, the more power you actually have. And the work of coming together in those spaces is itself the work of relationship building. It's the work of connection. It is the work of overcoming, again, neoliberalism as a political project designed to destroy solidarity. Yeah. Pushing back on that, um, I have been thinking about this so much, the famous sort of Margaret Thatcher line, right? Um, she was like, what is society? There's no such thing. There are individual men and women and there are families. Mm-hmm. And like COVID sort of put us all in what I've been thinking of as Margaret Thatcher units and like how traumatic that was for most of us in different mm-hmm. ways, right? Either mm-hmm. like me, you were alone for a lot of it and that mm-hmm. was traumatic or you had family responsibilities that were suddenly super overwhelming because you couldn't get any of your normal help because you weren't allowed to see anyone else um, and you were sort of trapped in the house with the same people <laughs> over and over again. Like all of it really, really underscored how much like there is a society, sorry, Margaret Thatcher, and Mm -hmm. we actually need each other and we need those relationships no matter how much we have been told that we don't. My parents were even the kind of like, you know, by the 80s, like level of like quasi-feminist where they're like, you don't need a man, you don't need a relationship, (laughs) you don't need anything, you just need a job. Yeah. Well, (laughs) (laughs) um, I may not need a man in particular, but I certainly need other people. And that's not... Um, it's not only sort of not embarrassing to admit, but it's actually like the precondition for doing anything useful in the world is actually other people. Um, to you know, even to something as basic as like I wrote a book, and if no one reads it, what's the point? I you know, and so I need I need people like you to talk to me about it. I need like all of this network that is you know weak and strong relationships and all of these things mm-hmm. in order for anything I do to be meaningful, even though a lot of what I do every single day is stare at my laptop by myself. Does anyone even remember when alone in front of a laptop wasn't the default working condition? We've heard how job-induced loneliness and exploitation affect us as individuals, but can collective action remedy these problems? We'll find out after the break. 
people today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to This is Critical. Today, we're talking to Sarah Jaffe, author of Work Won't Love You Back. I want to go to factory workers because I know yeah. that you, you know, you're a labor reporter. And anytime someone uses the word labor instead of the future of work, say, yeah. they're usually not talking about, you know, how to maximize your achievement at Google by taking naps in nap <laughs> capsules. But also, but labor brings to mind unions, yeah. brings to mind um you know, what used to seem like dated commitments at the advent of neoliberalism. To start sort of at the beginning, like the, the Google workers are now unionizing, right? There's a Google union. Um, and one of the things that's been interesting in recent years is watching these workers in these sort of broadly defined labors of love realize that unions are not just for coal miners, but they're actually for anybody who um, works for a living and isn't the boss. And so... Google workers who have a variety of different demands maybe than the workers who are working at the Ford factory um, or the coal mine, nevertheless, have on some level also similar demands, which is like, we are not actually controlling the products of our labor. We do not really control our time once we're on the job. And we are fundamentally often kind of treated like interchangeable cogs in a machine. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really, really interesting to sort of look at the way, you know, we've been told a story of the tech sector is a place where like highly educated, creative people work. But in a lot of ways, it's also just today's factory work. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of it is rote. A lot of it is repetitive. A lot of it is really boring. The hours are really long mm -hmm. and you can feel really isolated, really burned out. And so, you know, Google workers often sound a lot like factory workers when you talk to folks. I brought up neoliberalism earlier. <laughs> can you explain what that term means for, for our listeners and, and honestly for me? Um, what I mean and what most people that I think use the term correctly um, mean is a particular political project that begins, I mean, it's sort of thought up in, you know, across the 20th century as a response to the rise of communism, but it really comes into its own in politics in the 1970s. And I think it's important to note mm -hmm. the sort of social engineering project that comes along with that is essentially designed to destroy solidarity. It's designed to destroy unions. It's designed to destroy left-wing politics. Um, it is designed to destroy mm -hmm. the idea that we might be better served by being interconnected than by individually competing with each other to have the best things, stuff, home, job, family, whatever. 
this project brings with it mm-hmm. um, in order to, again, restore profits and, and capital flows, um, deregulation, right? So the best way to solve every problem is to let the market decide, which means in practice, suddenly you get rid of all the regulations, mm-hmm. keeping factories from keeping companies from closing down the factory in Indiana and opening it in Bangladesh, where there are far fewer safety regulations and environmental regulations. And so now you get, you know, you get massive capital flight, you get companies outsourcing to wherever they can find the cheapest and most exploitable labor and those jobs disappearing in the U.S., drying up and leaving us with the things that are much harder to outsource, which is again, direct service work, retail work, um, healthcare work, and a totally differently shaped Mm -hmm. workplace. Tell me about when, before actually, um, Trump's inauguration moment of silence for that bleak day, Mm -hmm. Trump seemed to be on the course of making a commitment to keeping factories, quote, open, which, as you say, is a low bar for people needing work, for laborers, um, that just to keep their factories open as opposed to um, minimize the amount of work they do and maximize the amount of money they make. All of a sudden, all workers were said to just want the mines, that miserable work of mining to stay open. Right, exactly. Okay, so Trump seemed on the course of keeping factories open for a brief time. And you even went to the Carrier Factory. That's that Mm -hmm. furnace plant in Indianapolis that was going to relocate to Mexico in 2016. Yeah. uh, Taking, I think it was going to be 1,400 jobs with it. So keeping this factory open became a major campaign promise. And Trump announced a deal to keep it open, a success he touted in the early days of his presidency that turned into something other than a success. So tell me about the carrier plant. This factory, the carrier factory outside of or in Indianapolis, um, it it sort of went viral. Uh, There were all these videos of the workers being told that it was closing down during the presidential primary, like 2015, 2016. Uh, both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump make a big deal out of it. And Trump picks the the governor of Indiana, Mike Pence, to be his running mate, um, you know, partly as a sop to, to religious conservatives, but also because Indiana is the capital of deindustrialization in the U.S. Um, mm. It's still sort of, I think, has lost the greatest number of factories per capita. So Indiana is important in all of these ways. So Mike Pence is now vice president, Trump is, or president-elect and vice president-elect, Trump and mm-hmm. Pence, go have a meeting with a carrier factory, decide that they're going to cut a big tax break to give car- carriers um, parent company, a bunch of tax dollars back, essentially to stay in Indiana and keep the factory open. Trump comes to town. They have a big, splashy, mission accomplished event. And then they find out, of course, that the deal is not worth what or is not what it's cracked up to be. So the factory stays open. There's a factory around the corner, um, a Rexnord factory around the corner that, you know, shortly after the carrier announcement that it's going to close, they announce that the Rexnord factory is going to close. They're also going to close it down, open it up in Mexico. Um, Trump makes not a peep about that one. These are forces of capitalism that are also bigger than Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, they are bigger than Joe Biden. They are bigger than an American president who is theoretically, you know, one of or not, if not the most powerful person in the world. But all of the sort of genies let out of the bottle with all of this deregulation are actually really hard to put back in. Yeah. And also, we should add to that that industrial capitalism set the planet on fire and we cannot actually go back to it even if we would want to mm-hmm. because um, all of our cities will be underwater. 
So climate change is real and we can't (laughs) sort of, you know, we can't go back to that moment. Also, we shouldn't romanticize it because again, it was built on this sort of division of labor that pushed women into certain unpaid work in the home that most of these jobs were actually kind of miserable. When you have to start begging to keep the factory open, you lose the ability. um, My friend Joshua Clover calls it the affirmation trap. You lose the ability to criticize the job because you have to be begging for the job. Oh, yeah. So it seems like we refer to people who work at car manufacturers and and we refer to coal miners as sort of the signature workers of the labor movement. And I don't know if it's an accident, but unwittingly or unwillingly, these are the workers who are complicit in what uh, Bill McKibben, the climate advocate, calls gouging shit out of the earth and burning it, which has become our chief preoccupation in the economy since the 20th century, and which we have to acknowledge now is wrecking our habitat and our lives. The real problem is capitalism. It is a system Mm -hmm. that is premised on the idea of constant growth at all costs Mm -hmm. and short-term gains above everything else. Um, And I don't really want to spend much time talking about like NFTs, but I feel like this is the perfect Mm -hmm. example of, you know, capital looking for new ways to speculate and make money in something that like ostensibly is digital and cool because it's digital, but like actually the amount of computing power that it takes to run the blockchain to make things like Bitcoin and NFTs possible is like the equivalent of, I don't know how many transatlantic flights, like it's, it's setting the planet on fire in whole new ways <laughs> and in ways that feel really dematerialized. Like, you know, when you're driving a car down the street, you sort of know you, you put gas in the car, you're aware mm-hmm. that this is a thing that's happening. When you are on Twitter, do you think about like the amount of, of actually existing computers that are somewhere that are running these things? You know, mm. we're on Zoom right now. Like there are actually existing places that are just massive buildings full of computers mm-hmm. that actually make the so-called cloud run. Um, mm. Again, to go back to the Google union, um, one of the things that they've done is really try to draw in connections with the workers who do the physical labor in these data centers. Mm-hmm. Because like there was a campaign um, last summer, spring, summer, no, around one of these data centers that was in, I believe, South Carolina. And the woman who worked there was like, they won't let me have a water bottle and this is an air condition. And I'm just in this giant place full of computers that are pumping out heat. Mm-hmm. And come on, like, give me something here. Yes. Um, So that, yeah, the the sort of physicality of even this immaterial work that is connected to the computer, Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't doesn't make it better that the factories are somewhere we can't see them now. Um, It doesn't make it better that there are fewer of them because we're doing other things that are also setting the planet on fire. And, you know, a system that sort of doesn't value any of these things. I quote um, Raj Patel and Jason W. Moore saying that like, if capitalism had to properly value care, it would, it would mean an end to capitalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's also true of if capitalism had to properly value the planet, mm-hmm. it would mean an end to capitalism. Because in either case, these are things that are just built into the system as free. Unsurprisingly, it turns out people aren't the only resource left exhausted and exploited by the state of work in our society. The planet is in trouble, too, as we know. Coming up after the break, if work won't love us back, how can we take better care of each other? People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. 
or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to This is Critical. Today, we're discussing labor, politics, and fulfillment with Sarah Jaffe, the author of Work Won't Love You Back. My sense is that you're to the left of me on the usual slider, but not that far to the left. And it's been an astonishing feature of this time that I've been exposed mm-hmm. to so many new ideas, yeah. um, up to include, and, and, I mean, probably notably many of the insights and tactics of Black Lives Matter that I, mm-hmm. you know, was less involved in the protests before uh, before Trump and then more yeah. involved. I see exactly yeah. how that organizing works or much better how that organizing works. Mm-hmm. And then I really think, and maybe I'm getting sentimental, but we need to give ourselves credit for the the weird solidarity that we learned to practice during the pandemic. Yeah. When I heard that Milan was, quote, shut down, the words didn't process. Like the Roman Colosseum mm-hmm. was shut down. And we did it in yeah. large part by staying alone or staying sequestered with our families, mm-hmm. which was yeah. really hard. But we did it for each other. Yeah. Yeah. I think weird solidarity is a great term. Um, I really love that. I would have like <laughs> end on that note. But yeah, I, I just want to think about those videos from early on in the pandemic when, right, Italy was the sort of place in, in Europe that we saw. And, there, you know, you would see videos of just people coming out onto their balconies and singing together at night. Yeah. yeah. And it was the most beautiful thing. I'm like tearing up thinking about it um, because it really was just like, how do we express this together. And it, it's almost depressing to think about those moments now when sort of, you know, I'm in England and and came from the US and like everybody just kind of decided like shrug, we're just going to lift all regulations and like and restrictions. And if people get sick, people get sick. Um, how different that is from those those moments of weird solidarity. Um, and, and again, that push to get back, go shopping, go mm-hmm. consume mm-hmm. Um, versus like, how do we actually restrict our consumption so we can take care of each other? How yeah. do we actually think about like, do I need to order this thing from Amazon? Because some set of humans is going to have to risk their life in order for me to get that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's actually true of the supply chain in general. It's not just true of the supply chain during COVID. It's also just true of like the people who were working in the factory and driving the trucks and doing all that. Like, Every day, people are risking their lives so that we can have that thing. And I just think we can make a world that that doesn't require so much risk and death and whatever in order for us to have stuff and where we actually do think about taking care of each other in all of these ways. Thank you so much, Sarah. This has really been eye-opening. Thank you. 
That's it for this week's episode of This is Critical. Make sure you don't miss next week's episode by following us or subscribing on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear... Oh, God, I'm not going to shame you guys, but please take a moment to write and review it in Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people learn about the show. For more information and to keep tabs on us, follow me on Twitter at page 88 and at this critical pod. If you've got a question or a cultural creed you think deserves another look, send us an email at thisiscriticalpod at gmail.com. This is Critical is made by me, Virginia Heffernan, and Stitcher. Corinne Wallace is the producer. Tracy Samuelson is our editor. Brendan Burns mixed this episode and composed our original theme. And Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and stay critical. Stitcher. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.